All right, today we have our special guest, Dr. Rob, and we are talking pro-dependence and ending codependency. We are so glad that you're here because you're choosing to thrive after betrayal, trauma, or addiction. Hi, I'm Ashlyn, the once betrayed. I'm Kobe, the once addicted. And I'm Brandon, the expert. Now, why am I an expert? Because I've treated betrayal, trauma, and addiction for over a decade. I want to invite you guys over to our premium site where you get in-depth content and access to us. We answer questions there for you and you get interaction with like-minded people. To find that site, go ahead and click details and scroll to the bottom, you'll see the link to our Patreon site. But before we jump in, we're going to just read a quick review. For those of you who haven't yet, please jump over to the Apple uh, podcast app and leave a review. Love you to rate as well. This one is it's titled, Great Podcast I Have Ever. Um, it says, I love this podcast. I have learned a great deal and it is all so helpful, useful information. I love having the three different perspectives and views as well. Love it. Also fascinating. So thank you for that. That was just a real nice quick review for those of you again, who haven't yet, please jump over there. It makes a difference and it helps and love to hear from you on uh, the podcast and what it does. So, okay. To introduce uh, Dr. Rob, it's kind of weird for me having you here, Dr. Rob, because I feel like I know you. Um, I've, I've shaken your hand a few times. I've listened to you at conferences. I've, uh, I've sat through CSAT trainings, and he has imparted so much wisdom onto me over the years. I remember uh, over a decade ago when I, when I first started looking into to actually getting, getting into this and treating this, I, I Googled up how, you know, how to treat sex addiction, and and there was Dr. Rob Weiss everywhere. And so he's a pioneer and he is an expert and he knows this stuff, I think, better than anybody. So along with that, he is the, the chief clinical officer of a group of online real world communities, um, helping those struggling with intimacy disorders and drug abuse. Um, these communities are known as Seeking Integrity um, he's the author of 10 books on sexuality and intimate relationships. And he also has a podcast, um, Sex, Love, and Addiction Podcast, is currently in the top 10 of U.S. addiction health podcasts. So uh, Dr. Rob is a big timer, and uh, we're so happy to have him here. And we're talking about this thing called pro-dependence. So Dr. Rob, do you want to just kind of introduce that to us and tell us what that is? Well, I... Don't know how to follow that introduction. Um, <laughs> I can't follow it this way. There were people when I was in early recovery who made a huge difference in my life, like Patrick Carnes and Ken Adams and people who were writing who were maybe a little bit older than I am. And, you know, they were my pioneers. And I'm so grateful that I can at least lend some help to some people. I just am extraordinarily thrilled at what the digital world has brought because we can do this. We can do webinars, we can do Q&As, I can talk to people all over the world and give them help for free if I want. And that just is such a gift that, that some of my predecessors didn't have. So um, thank you, I'm really glad to be here and to be able Absolutely. to do this kind of thing. Yes. yes, couldn't agree more. So, so Dr. Rob, what is, when you say pro-dependence and it's ending codependency, um, wh what, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, let me just say that I'm not um, shooting random shots um, at something I don't like. I, I uh, <laughs> spent three and a half years getting a PhD, which is how, about how long it takes. 
And I made the focus of my study the history of the field of codependency. So I read every book, uh, Melody Beatty, Claudia Black, I read them all. I read all the reviews, I read all the information, I read all the clinical literature, I read all the research. I really never felt comfortable with this model. And I am old. I am nearly 60. I was in recovery in the 80s. I was going to meetings in the 80s. Um, I was going to to Al-Anon and CODA in the 80s. I remember how the field began to shift and where it and I see where it is now. And I, I don't believe in any way, I am absolutely certain that it was never the intention of the people who came up with codependency to make it something that uh, a model that made people feel badly for the love they give to troubled people. Right. I don't think that was the intention. You know, in all of my research, you know, I, 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 and I wrote a book, it is a book, it's called Codependence. It's not long, easy to read, and I make 12 cents if you buy one, so feel free. <laughs> that's what publishers, I'm, I'm sorry, that's what publishers pay. But the reality is, is that um, um, codependence came out of a time and a place in the 1980s where that individuate from dependency, leave dependency behind, be a strong person, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You can do this yourself. This whole concept of self-actualization, being the best you you could be. In other words, we would have called it the me generation. That was all over um, psychotherapy in the 80s and 90s. So the idea that women, and that's who codependency was written by and for women, that, and how do I know this? Because women buy 95% of all self-help books and 11 million right. copies of Codependent No More were sold in the late 80s. And I know who they who bought them. Um, right. So I know that the time that, that those concepts came about, women were in particular were looking to be empowered. You know, it was the end of the Equal Rights Amendment. Women were going back into the workplace. The 80s was a period, if you look at the movies, nine to five. You know, three women, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, and Dolly Parton, trying to get ahead of this stupid boss, you know, who just couldn't understand that these women were smart and needed to get ahead. And that was what women were struggling with at the time. Men, not so much. You know, we had Top Gun. I wasn't looking for anyone to approve of me, validate (laughs) me, you know, in the 80s. I already was the top. I was, you know, a a male and a college educator, all that. So... Codependency, I think, really fit this need that women in particular had to become less dependent on men and go out there and break the glass ceiling and achieve and do it on their own. And unfortunately, and I think that's actually why it took off so much with women is because it was the right message for women at the time. But in terms of mental health, there has never, ever, from 1985 to the present, ever been a diagnosis for codependency, not in any of our mental health yeah, literature. That's true. There's no insurance billable. There's no criteria based. In other words, there's nothing, nothing, zero, that says in our literature that if you do this, 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 and you have that, 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 that you're codependent because codependency does not exist in mental health literature. And nor does the way that we work with codependency, the way we would look at people who are caregivers, exist in any arena, mental health, physical health, outside of addiction. If, if I love someone who has cancer and I give up my life to help them, you're going to say that I'm a hero and you're going to give me casseroles yes. and bring me cake. And, but if I give up my life and focus to help somebody who has an addiction, you're going to think I'm doing it wrong and ruining my life. Right. And that whole concept of how can something be so wonderful to be a caregiving, loving person in one arena be turned off so bad in another arena. It Almost just villainized, right? Me. Vilified. Yeah. When I heard you say that phrase, it was the kind of zoom out. And if you have that person 
in your life that you love and want to take care of. That's when things started to, oh my gosh, like this pro-dependence thing is, could be something that shifts my life instead of this label that I put on myself that I beat myself up over when I start to feel that pull. So I, that's the part right there that you just shared that really spoke to me when I heard the first parts. Well, let's just go into that for a minute, okay? When a partner or a parent or a loved one has to take on the codependency model, basically they have to start treatment by saying there's something wrong with me and mm -hmm. I need to figure out what's wrong with me. And not only that, but I've been contributing to the problem of their, this other person's addiction despite how much I love them, I've been making it worse. And I need to find out what's wrong with me that's been making this situation worse. And that is so combobulated yes. because I, every family member that I've ever worked with in 25 years, and I've been licensed, licensed for 25 years. Wow. And I've worked in addiction for 25 years. Every partner and family member that ever walked into my office felt that they had done the best job they could up to that point. They mm -hmm. felt like they had lived with very difficult situation, sometimes intolerable, but they had sort of powered through it. They'd worked extra jobs. They put an extra time. They put aside their self-care to try to help the addicted one they love and save their family. And then when they get into treatment, they're told there's something wrong with them. And they resent that. And that hurts them. And it doesn't really, not only is it not true, I don't believe, because I think caregiving is something to be celebrated, not vilified. But on the other hand, I also think that you're taking people, look, when I did my research, I asked therapists, that's who I did it on, do you think that someone who's involved with an active addict and is coming to see you for help as a therapist, because because they have an active addict, alcoholic, drug addict, whatever it is in their life, do you think that person is in a crisis? 91% of the therapists I interviewed said, yes, they're in a crisis because the loved one they care about is failing, their family's failing, they can't do anything about it, they've been trying, can't make it better, it's a crisis. Well, I know this, I then looked at crisis counseling methods. There's nothing in crisis counseling that ever asks anyone to do anything complex, to learn difficult theories. When people are in a crisis, they need simple answers, simple solutions, hope, a lot of validation, a lot of support, we're gonna get you through this experience. And questioning and evaluating and assessing is not helpful to them. Um, because, and I want to just say this with all sincerity, I know that when someone you love fails, you are grieving. You are grieving the loss of the family you thought you were going to have. And grief, inherent inside of grief, is remorse. That mm -hmm. feeling that, you know, maybe if I'd done this, they wouldn't have ended up drinking. Or maybe if I'd done that, they wouldn't have gotten a DUI. Or everyone, look, if my, when my dog died, I felt remorse. Like, you know, I should have walked in more. I should have, you know, that's part of it. So why would we want to prey on these already existing feelings of loved ones, caregivers of alcoholics, drug addicts, sex addicts, partners, parents, why would we want them make them feel like they've done anything wrong when all they've tried to do in the best way they know how is get the person they love well? So wow. Dr. Rob, I hear you. And I guess what my question is then is, um, you know, they recognize the problem. They recognize there's an addiction. Um, they do need some boundaries. Um, mm -hmm. so to, so, so, so explain to me, um, what pro-dependence is like, what is the difference between mm -hmm. get, you know, ripping yourself out of codependency and being independent and not really having any attachment being strong and independent and what, what pro-dependency is and how boundaries work into that. Uh, well, 
there's a lot of questions inside of that, but I think it starts with the initial first moment that I spend with a partner or a family member. Under codependence, my goal is to understand why they did the things they did. That's the, mm -hmm. the first thing I need to understand. Why did they do all this rescuing and caretaking and caregiving? Why did they put their life aside when you need to take care of yourself if you're gonna take care of it? Why did they give up all their boundaries? What's wrong with this partner? this parent, this wife, that she or he didn't take better care of themselves and they let go of themselves to focus on this troubled person. So in other words, from the very first, codependency assumes that all that loving, all that caregiving, all that putting down my own needs to put up, focus on someone else is, some, is a pathology, is something that's wrong. That is a, the, the model of codependency. And the question to the partner is, what was wrong with you? in your childhood and in your adult life that made you give yourself up to help this troubled person who you really couldn't help because they're addicted and you couldn't help them anyway and you're helping them probably made them worse. So let's help you not help them anymore. It's so interesting when you say it like that because everything I taught in, was taught in school was the strengths-based perspective, right? So, so like, and that's the opposite of that. A codependent right. comes in and it's like, you're doing everything wrong as right. opposed to looking at them as, it, heroes. You know, that, heroes and survivors and resilient in so many That's ways. Right. Yeah. That's right. What's changed from a therapy perspective is we, I said it earlier, we were living in a world where self-actualization, being the best me I can be, was the demand of psychotherapy in the 80s and 90s. Not all of you too young to remember Est and LifeSpring and Insight, but we all went to personal develop seminars. I mean, the me generation wanted to really understand me really well. The problem is, is that that's not where mental health is today. Our focus on mental health is attachment. We yes. understand now that me by myself doing the best I can with as much energy and focus and talent, I'm still not going to be half as good as I would be if I was in relationship to people. We understand in mental health today that our relationships are as important as our success. In yes. fact, our success is contingent on the quality of our friendships, our family relationships, our spirituality, our church, and our, and most important, our family and intimate relationships. The idea that I would separate a troubled person from the people they love the most when they're in the greatest crisis, I think that makes no sense at all. Yes. So how would you articulate in a, in a, in a statement pro-dependence? Pro-dependence is not something that you can be. It's a theory of human relationships that says that when two people come together and one of them begins to fail, that it is natural and normal and healthy for the person who's still healthy to do double time, to try to make up the space. That if I love you and you are ill because I love you, because I'm attached to you, because I love our family, that I will do anything short of losing my own life to help you. And that is normal, that's attachment. I will fight and give up of myself to help the people I love. And I will never understand the pathologizing of that. Now, let me, let me say something. You can love someone in ways that aren't productive. Look, let me give you an example. So two examples. Number one, when the partner or the parent of an alcoholic or drug addict or sex, whatever it is, walks into my office, the first thing I say to them is, how are you doing? It must have been a really hard road to hang in there with this person who's so troubled. I'm so impressed that you have the strength and the courage to stay there for the love that you've had and the love that you believe will return. Now, let's look at what you did that, that actually was productive and helped, and let's look at what wasn't productive so that I, now that you have me on board, since I'm an expert in addiction and no parent or partner ever is, 
Now we can use my expertise to help you and we will make this better. So we can look at their good decisions, their not so good decisions, but not in any terms of they're having done anything wrong. Everything in prodependence is viewed as all of their attempts were reasonable and logical and hopeful attempts to try to heal their family and stay connected, even if they look crazy on the outside. So there, there is some level of, uh, I guess what I he hear you, you saying is, there is a, we, we take the strengths-based perspective, we, we, we look at everything that they've done in that relationship as a positive, but there, yes. is, some there is some level of, some of those things might, and I don't know, this, this word might trigger you, Dr. Rob, some level of, you, you may be enabling them. You, you may yeah, be, I don't like that word. Sorry, no yeah, enabling. Yeah. There's no enabling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so explain well, that Let me give an me. example. Yeah. I'll give you an example for that. I give this example whenever I teach because this would be the most heinous, the most vile, the most problematic codependency uh, example I can think of. Um, let's say that there's a mom and she's got three kids at home under the age of 14. And her husband is drinking heavily. And he has lately begun to drink during the day. He's got a DUI. He lost a job because he was drinking while he was at work. And he's picked up the kids from school drunk a few times. So okay. this mom thinks, I'm going to handle this problem. I'm going to get this man in line. You know, she's got to fix this problem. And so she brings home a cold bottle of scotch or whiskey or, or vodka. And she puts it on the table. And she says to him, look, if you can stay sober until four o'clock in the afternoon, if you can pick my kids up sober, if you can keep your job, if you can not get arrested in the daytime, uh, I'm going to take the car keys away from you, but you can have a bottle. It'll be sitting on the table every night when you come home. Mm -hmm. Now I can only imagine in the recovery world, at oh my gosh. What, what that would be called. They would eat her alive. I think that she was a miracle worker. I would say to her, that was so clever. Mm -hmm. We have a word for this. She was unconsciously doing what we call in our field, harm reduction. Yep. She was not able to get her husband to stop drinking because she's not trained to get anybody to stop drinking, nor would anyone expect, expect her to know how because she didn't go to graduate school and learn addiction, but I did. In any case, on her own, the best she could do, and I think it's pretty clever. She got her kids to school and back sober for a year Safely. and a half. She got the money in the house a year and a half. She got that man wasn't arrested for a year and a half. Unfortunately, her solution was not good enough to solve the problem of alcoholism, which is the bigger issue. For that, she needed an expert. So when she comes to me, I'm going to say to her, those were very clever ways of trying to help your family get a little further down the road with someone who was so troubled and wasn't pulling their weight. Yes. But now that I'm here, we can try to work on the bigger problem, which is the alcoholism. And I think we can do that together. No negatives, no judgments, no words like enabling. Just you are a hero of this family for doing everything you can to try to get another day of healing in this life. Wow. Does that just blow people's minds when they hear that for the first time? Especially for the partner who is dealing with this um, addiction, no matter how it manifests. Yeah. How does it show up hearing codependency versus prodependency to the addicted? Well, first of all, let me say for the partners, um, the fam the partners and the parents and the people who love addicts, I cannot tell, I've never, I've written nine books, you said, not 10, 10 is coming, but I've written nine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I have sat signing books, you know, for almost 20 years, like, thank you for coming to my talk, here's a book. You when I talk about prodependence, people buy five of them and they give one to everyone in their treatment and they say, why don't everyone I work with have one of these? Or yeah. they bring, or wow. they buy, or they buy five of them and they say, 
I want to give one to my grandma, my auntie, my mom, and my sister, because when we lost my dad, they told us that we all had a part in his dying, and we, that has haunted us for 15 years, and you're saying that we can forgive ourselves? Thank you so much for letting us off the hook. We didn't do the drinking, and we didn't cause it, and we did everything we could that we knew how to do to stop it, and thank you for validating that instead of making us into bad people who didn't love in the right way. Yes. Yes. Wow. Okay. So how show us how it shows up for the addicted. Well, for the addict, I, I didn't, I have to tell you, I did not think about this at all when I wrote the book. And so it was a tricky question. Someone asked me, well, how does this pro-dependence thing affect the addict? And I said, well, let me tell you how codependency affected the addict. For me, and I am an addict, I loved codependency on the level that and I think every addict would say this if they were honest, it gave me the ability to not get sober, not get clean, not work on my issues because I could blame my spouse or parent. Yeah. It allowed me for years to say, you know, I would stop drinking, but she just won't stop nagging and complaining and, and all that codependent behavior. So I think it has always given the addict of every stripe another way to say, not my fault, it's their fault. And we reinforce this because we give partners all these reasons why it's somehow their fault that they're supporting the addiction. That's a bunch of crap. Yes, I agree. So I wait, like I'm not done. Okay. So okay. <laughs> uh, under codependency, we, we really liked it as addicts because it gave the partners, uh, we could blame our addiction on them. But we also hated it because it, it also, it made the partners focus on themselves and it took them away from us and they weren't as supportive and as nurturing. At times when we might have needed them, they were told to really step back. And just so you know, in case you don't, all of the facts in the research tell us that the people who recover the most stably for the longest period of time are those who have deeply intimate supportive family members involved in their recovery. So detachment is not a good path for the addict. But let me tell you what prodependence says. Codependence says, I think, something like, well, you must have married me because you have all these mirrors or experiences from your past of problematic relationships. And you saw me and you just latched onto me like a mirror of your past problems. That's why you need to look at your, for the, that's why the partner needs to look at their problems. But to the addict, what it's saying is directly to the addict, you know, you've been a problem all along. And had this person been healthier in the first place, they never would have married you. They never would have joined you. And mm. if they work really, really hard on themselves, maybe they'll outgrow you because they're mm. going to be healthier than you are. And I think that's basically you're telling the addict you were a loser from day one. There was always something wrong with you. And that's why this person picked you. And when they are done with your problematic behavior feeding them, they're, they're really because they're really in it for the pathology. Yep. Pro-dependence says, I'm pretty darn sure. You know, you st I'm so impressed that you stayed with this guy because I think that you or woman, whoever the addict is, you hold the light, the line to who they used to be. You, you know, the reason you stayed is because you still see the good in them. You still see the things that you love. You still see inside of all that problems and addiction, the person that might be worth hanging out for. And this person is willing, despite the pain, to hang in there for you, hoping that you will get well. And once again, or maybe for the first time, become that person that they always saw in you. I would love to be the addict who thinks, oh, they stayed because they still see the good in me despite all the crap I've done. They still think I'm worth something. I don't, that they didn't stay because they were sick. They stayed because of love. I just think that works all the way around. I do too. Because often how the betrayed can show up is it looks like they don't love you when it's, I think most of our efforts are because of that love that we are. Yes. 
<laughs> so, doc, Dr. Rob, um, share with us, if you will, how this message of prodependence is received by the family members of the partner and the family members of the addict who really are, I, I guess it could be, you know, involved in some, in some support role to whatever degree. How do they receive this? Because there's a lot of people that could say, oh, my, I mean, my, in my own family, my, my mom died of barbiturate abuse and pneumonia, and my brother spent a year in prison because of drugs. And there's a lot of this conversation about what was okay, what was not okay, as is, is it relates to my dad's involvement. But what is the fam- what are the, how do the families respond when they hear this? Um, I don't think anybody wants to be told that what they did was wrong that the way they were thinking made no sense, that they didn't see how troubled they were. Here's the deal, okay? Addiction treatment, which I've been doing for 25 years. I have a treatment center. By the way, I do have a treatment center called Seeking Integrity out here in California. And we do treat sex addiction in men, and we also treat co-occurring sex and drug addiction. Um, uh, And we do real, I love the work that we do. Um, Every family member that I've worked with has said, Thank you so much. This is the model that I want to work under where you appreciate the fact that I've given a lot of myself and that I've sacrificed a lot, but not because I'm sick, but because I have a lot of love. And they really have valued the model a lot. And especially, of course, I've heard from family members who they feel they suffered with codependency in the past. Um, So I only see family members curious about how to take healthy steps going forward and how to not make things worse, but they are really pleased that they're not being blamed for staying with the people they, I mean, think about it. They're not being blamed for staying with the people they loved, for trying to help the people they loved, for having to put aside their own needs for the people they loved, just like you wouldn't blame someone if the person they loved had pneumonia. Wow. They're thrilled. That's a big deal, right? I'll tell you more though. Wanna hear more? Yeah. You know who else is thrilled? I taught this at Betty Ford last week. I went to oh, Hazel wow. a few weeks ago and taught this. Um, I have, there are pro-dependency groups. This is the weirdest effing thing to me. <laughs> I went to New Zealand. I went to Singapore, uh, sorry, I went to Sydney, Australia in September of last year to do a lecture on porn. And uh, a bunch of women said, would you mind if you stop into our women's group? And I said, sure, can, what can I help with? And they said, well, we're working on pro-dependence in Australia, a group wow. of 18 women. I was in Singapore and I said, would you stop in on this group? They wanna learn more. It's a group doing pro-dependence in Singapore. The gift of the wow. world that we live in and the work we're doing right here is that it isn't just people that we live near us who see this and hear this. People in Japan and Dubai and Hong Kong and, and, and Italy see this and they learn from it. And so what is, it, 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 pro-dependence is becoming a bit of a phenomenon. And what's happened for me as I was reached out, by, out to by the largest academic publishers in the psychological field. Uh, their name is Rutledge Taylor Francis. And they said, we really believe in this model and we understand you wrote a theoretical book. We want to see the practice of it. So I'm now working on a contract that I've signed to create a clinical guide and workbook for how to do assessments, how to do evaluations, how to write treatment plans, how to eliminate all those nasty words like enabling and enmeshment and replace them with words like committed and forcefully loving and powerfully connected and things that are strength-based. Wow. That really is going to make a difference because all those words, yes, of course I've heard all those words. And so I like the, I, even just listening to you, it feels different. 
And what feels, feels different? Like I May feel I you. What feels different? Yes, <laughs> I feel love. Like, oh, it's different to hear that. Sometimes we hear feedback like, "Art, you're stupid for staying with this man who's cheated on you, right?" And done all these things. And is it real? Are you guys really making it? Do you do you really trust him? And so I do feel this validation and love from Dr. Rob, who isn't my therapist, right? Isn't work, but Never you're met giving before. me no, but you're you're that energy. I'm feeling it. So thank you. Uh, I'm hearing Dr. Rob. Uh, you know, just coming off what Ashlyn just said. Um, I'm hearing pro-dependence is, it's pro-attachment. It's, yes. it's pro-compassion. And, yes. and I mean, how can you go wrong with that? And it's just, we've gotten it so wrong for so long. And Well, let me say something about that. You have to understand where codependency comes from. First of all, it came primarily from three women who wrote three very powerful books about right. codependency in the 1980s. All of these women in their books wrote about growing up with alcoholic abusive fathers and all of them wrote about in these books marrying alcoholic abusive men so their conclusions about their experience were absolutely dead on and there are things that are worthwhile and thinking about in there but i don't think the way they reach those the conclusions they reach are not accurate for example um there's an idea in psychology that we are probably going to be attracted to people who have emotional challenges similar to ours i think that's okay. true Yes. And I, I wrote the last chapter of Prodependence, my favorite chapter in the book, is called Twos Don't Marry Sevens. And what that means is I'm using terms from, you know, if you're a 10, you're really hot. And if you're a one, you're not. Kinda. Okay, yes. But I'm using it for emotions <laughs> and psychological development. So if you're a two, and I hear this from women all the time who are twos and threes, they're, they're, they're just difficult women. They have lots going on, lots of drama. They're using drugs, whatever. But they want to marry an eight. They want a guy who's calm and stable and supportive. But when they meet eights, you know what they tell me? That guy's really boring. And they never want to date him. Interesting. Because they're not going to be attracted to someone who's an eight. It's not going to happen. And when I meet men who are eights, and they tell me, oh, that two, she's really hot, or he, or whatever it is. But there's so much drama. I couldn't take all of that drama all the time. So the eight is going to turn away the two. The two is going to turn away the eight for absolutely. But here's the gift, I think. And this is what codependency has missed so utterly. I can grow and be more by myself. I can go to therapy. I can go to support groups. I might be a two or a three emotionally, but maybe I get to a, ooh, a five if I try really hard. But you know what? I truly believe that if I'm in a committed relationship with someone else who's a two or a three and I'm a two or a three and we're both committed to healing, that together we will get far further in our emotional and psychological no question. development than we ever would have gotten as two single people. That's so great. That. Okay, so Dr. Rob, here's, here's, a, here's a question. I know that we're running short on time, but I wanted to ask this question and that is, if there is a concept, if there is a principle of pro-dependence that our listeners both the betrayed and the addicted, no matter if they're men, women, or whatever the case is, right? If there's a concept or a principle that they can put front of mind to be really thoughtful of on the daily in order to keep them in a frame of mind of prodependence, what would that be? And maybe it's not one, maybe it's two, but what would you say? I stayed here for the right reasons. They may not be happening right now, but there were good reasons and I made good decisions for staying and being here. That would be one. Okay. Um, 
even though everything I do may not be as helpful as I would like or have the outcome that I would like with this person, I understand that everything I'm doing is just to try to heal my family and make it better. And I don't know any better. I'm just doing what I know. Um, and I would say to every partner and family member, don't let anyone ever tell you that the love, there's anything wrong with the love you gave, even if you didn't give it in a way that was helpful. You loved, you stuck by, you hung in there, you did your best. And I think you're a hero. I love all that. Wow. So I have, I have, before you go, before we run out of time, I have a couple, a couple questions I have to ask. So uh, first question is, when are you going to develop a training on this and where do I sign up? Um, that needs to well, happen soon. <laughs> well, in about a year, Rutledge will publish a clinical guide and workbook to, co to codependence. And awesome. understand that Rutledge, what they are, I would have paid them to do this book. What they are is they go to every university and every academic institution in the world that's English speaking in, in England and America. And they say, we have this new model, we have this new book. And so the last major thing that I can think about that was published like this, Sue Johnson's EFT was uh -huh. published by Rutledge, a uh, clinical wow. guide and workbook to EFT. So what's gonna happen if I'm lucky is it will go into the schools and those people who are young will start to learn about it. And by the way, let me say something about that. I'm really, it's really important to me for everyone to understand that there are 375 books in English with the word title codependency in them. Wow. There isn't any single one of those books that we can point to and say, here's the right way. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's helpful for our students, for our younger people, because we don't have a universal way of looking at the treatment of families. We have 370 of them. And I, it all depends on which teacher wants to teach what model. And I just don't like that part. Um, wow. um, so when it comes out as a clinical workbook, I think that a guide, it'll go into the schools. And once it's in the schools, then I'll probably be running around the country doing trainings for people who are already licensed to learn what they didn't get to learn in school. That's awesome. Um, so I've been accused of being pro-codependency and I've uh, been accused of being anti-codependency. And so, <laughs> and, you know, um, and, and what's interesting to me is uh, when I first, when I first started treating this, codependency was the model. And then um, Barbara Steffens came out with her book betrayal trauma came along and codependency kind of became this dirty word. Um, you, you don't bring up codependency. Mm -hmm. It's, it's betrayal trauma. And I totally believe in betrayal trauma. Uh, mm -hmm. And however, sometimes I think it goes a little far into um, just, it, it gets people stuck in a victim stance of yes. I've been betrayed. I've been hurt. Now I'm going to go to that independent place and they, they kind of end up in the same place that they would have ended up being treated for codependency. Um, I think that's a, but I think that's a, I don't know the exact model you're talking about, or, but I will say that I have heard that there, first of all, I'm come from the sex addiction world, right? 25 right. years. I've been 35 years in 12-step programs for sexual recovery. I've been treating sex addiction as a licensed person 25 years. I've written eight books on sex addiction. So I know this stuff. And, um, and you know, this is where this came from. I learned, I followed the codependency model up until the early 2000s when people in my field started saying, right. this doesn't work. How could any partner feel responsible for being cheated on? So well, all I've really done is, I've done two things. One is I took, I did two things. One is I said, this model doesn't work. And I don't think it just doesn't work for partners of this addiction. I think it doesn't work for any partners of any addiction because all yeah. partners of all addictions are gaslighted and lied to and seduced and manipulated. Whether you say you're going to be home at five and you're out drinking till 10 or it's with women, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're still ruining your family. And so the one thing I absolutely think this universally applies 
different than the stuff you're talking about, the work I am specifically interested in all partners, not just, not at all limited to this addiction, to sexual right. betrayal. All addicts betray their partners. Drinking, when you say you're going to be present, yes. is a betrayal. Right. Um, but, but the difference that I'm hearing you talk about that I think is, is the key, is so important, is instead of having a, an, an attitude or an angle of, of I'm stuck, I'm a victim, um, you're bad, I'm bad, it's, it's, it's right. you're really coming to it from a place of compassion and love. And I believe that's what does heal, ultimately. If, I mean, as but cheesy as it sounds. why am I doing that? Why am I coming to it from a place of compassion and love? Because I don't think that partners and parents and family members are addicts. Absolutely the whole codependency not. model. So let me just give you a quick one-on-one on how we treat addiction. I'm sure you all know this. We talk to the person about their history, their whole history. Mm -hmm. Then mm -hmm. we look at the, the, the distortions in their thinking. How did you think that that was going to be okay right. for your wife? That was going to be okay for your family? And we start to confront and challenge people's thinking and behavior. Okay, that's also the model for codependency. You ask people to look at the distortions and how they've looked at their family life and how it really is, and then they need to change their behaviors and change. How about partners and family members aren't addicted to the addict? They're obsessed with the problem. And if yes. you're obsessed with the problem because a person's in crisis, you need a whole different form of treatment than addiction treatment. Partners do not need, parents do not need to have their distortions confronted. They full well know how bad the problem is. It's right in front of them. They, and their responses are not addicting response, addictive responses. They're normal responses, healthy responses to the failure of your family and your inability to heal it no matter how hard you try. Right, right. It's great. Love it. It sounds like that, that love and compassion that you're extending to families and to people allows forward movement. You know what? In like a real substantial way. But they told us this. They told us this. If you, if you spend time in treatment centers, okay, and, and really the basic ones where people don't have an extraordinary psychological language, they just know how to do addiction work and codependency. It's all they know. Right. And if you have partners and family members and they, you know, they've gotten that alcoholic in the hospital, they've gotten that loved one in the treatment center, they're feeling like, oh, I finally did it. And then they go into their first group and they say, well, here's codependency and this is what you did wrong. And they, some of them want to leave right away. Some of them say, wait a minute. I feel like I've done everything right. I've tried so hard. I finally got this person here. And now you're telling me there's something wrong with me. They resent it. They get angry. And then I have seen many, many well-trained therapists say things like, I don't understand why she won't look at her rescuing. Or I don't under, oh, he's such an enabler. Like they, in other words, I have seen for years now, family members get blamed for not fitting into the model that we have for them, as opposed to Maybe the model doesn't fit the client. Yes. <laughs> um, and I want to remind everyone, codependency has never on any, in any nation on the planet ever been of pure diagnosis. It was submitted for diagnosis many, many times. It never made it. We already have diagnoses for unhealthy dependency. We didn't need another one. And I'll say one last thing. Codependency in my mind was a model written for, by, and around addicted people, about addicted people, and from an addiction model. But the people who wrote it did not understand mental health. Yes. I understand that my job is to be where the client is. If a client thinks they've been a hero, it's not my job to tell them they haven't been. It's my job to say, you have been a hero. Now let me help you find some ways to make it better. I need to show up where the patient is, not where I think they should be, because the model I have in my head. 
Um, Amen. Meeting yes. them where they are in their journey. What a, what a, a life-saving focus, honestly. Yeah. So Dr. Rob. I, well, I hope we have more of these conversations with Dr. Rob. And honestly, if you guys are listening to us um, here on YouTube or on iTunes, we want to hear what you think about this concept and would love to hear your feedback about this conversation. Um, Dr. Rob, where can they find more information, your books, um, your social sure. media, that stuff? Okay, I'll take a breath because uh, I've been in this for a while. Um, so I do have a podcast called Sex, Love, and Addiction. Um, I have managed to gather together some really famous, amazing therapists from all over the world who teach about addiction and mental health and, and uh, family relationships and all of that kind of stuff. And we have a lot of fun. It's good for the addicts to listen to. It might keep them out of trouble in their cars. Um, I've been writing a blog for about nine years for Psychology Today called Sex and Love in the Digital Age. And there's a lot of really good blogs on there about sexuality and healing. Um, also, you can find me in this. I'm very proud of this. I'm online twice a week free. I'm on uh, sexandrelationshiphealing.com, sexandrelationshiphealing.com. On Monday nights, California time at five o'clock. I'm on intherooms.com on six o'clock Friday nights. Uh, and all that means is I sit there for an hour and I answer questions because when I was starting out, you know, in my early recovery and therapy, I couldn't ask Claudia Black questions. I couldn't ask John Bradshaw. My heroes weren't accessible right. to me except through books, but I'm online two hours a week. Anybody wants to show up, I'm glad to answer your questions anytime. Are those chat forums, Dr. Rob? In the Rooms is a site that has about 175 12-step meetings online. And I'm a huge fan of online 12-step for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, including some S meetings. Sexandrelationshiphealing.com is a site that I've set up with about 15 volunteer therapists. And we do nothing but volunteer groups. They're free for, sec for male sex addicts, for female sex addicts, for porn addicts, for gay men, for chem sex, for couples. We do all free volunteer support um, about That's eight beautiful. or 10 groups a week. That That's is a beautiful. great resource. Dr. Rob, that is awesome. Yes. And we'll put but, all uh, that, that information in the show notes here on YouTube and in iTunes so that you can just click away. And uh, hey lastly, guys, I hope you invite me back to talk about sex sometime. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk about we, it. We, we would honestly love that. And I think there's, there's plenty of space for it too. Lastly, just as far as your book is concerned, again, the name of the book is called? Pro-dependence, uh, moving beyond codependency. Okay. And they can find that in all my books, uh, sex addiction, one one um, uh, out of the doghouse. All my books are on Amazon, easy to find. And they all, oh. most of them have e-readers as well. Good. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Thanks for being with us. Thank oh, by the so way, much. if they want to reach me, if you want to write a note, I'm Rob at seekingintegrity.com. Not hard to find. I will answer your questions. I'll send you a therapist. I'll send you information, send you an article. I try to give away as much as I possibly can. Oh, you're awesome. wonderful. That's awesome. That's you guys beautiful. are amazing. Thank you for the great show. Uh -huh. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Appreciate you joining us. Guys, uh, glad you're here. Again, if you have heard something that you really like, which I'm more than certain that you have, share this episode because this uh, spans far beyond the realm of addiction and betrayal. And uh, again, love to hear you guys rate and review. So thanks for being here. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dr. Rob. Bye, guys.